Moncrief on News Talk. Time to look again at some of the most influential issues of the last 20 years. And today it's the smoking ban introduced here in 2004. It bans smoking in any workplace, including pubs and restaurants. But that controversy was only a minor skirmish in the ongoing war between big tobacco and governments all over the world. Sarah Milov is the author of The Cigarette, A Political History, and she joins us now on News Talk. Good afternoon, Sarah. Hi, Sean. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, thanks for uh, talking to us today. Uh, As I understand it, certainly in the US, uh, the tobacco industry was was in receipt of huge government aid. Yeah. um, For most of the 20th century in the United States, the tobacco industry, in some form or another, most visibly with tobacco farmers, um, was actually receiving a lot of subsidy um, from the federal government. And so we think about, um, uh, you know, regulation in the United States as being, you know, more laissez-faire and hands-off. But actually, um, in the case of tobacco, regulation actually worked to the benefit of toba- the tobacco industry. Uh, and were, were they, was the tobacco industry, did it publicly acknowledge the, the, the fact that it was getting so much uh, federal aid? Um, In a way, they did. So the story of the government's involvement with the tobacco industry really begins during the 1930s, um, during the Great Depression, when the New Deal tries to subsidize all all kinds of Americans, but most importantly, um, farmers. And in the U.S. South, um, a really important group of farmers was tobacco farmers. And the reason the U.S. government does this is because Franklin Roosevelt's political coalition relied on the support of Southern Democrats and Southern Democrats represented tobacco farmers. So they were a really important constituency. And so throughout the 20th century, these subsidies don't go away until the early 2000s, you know, decades after smoking is understood to be a major public health threat and public health issue. uh, Tobacco farmers are receiving a very generous subsidy from the U.S. government. And in a way, the tobacco industry tries to capitalize upon this by kind of holding up the tobacco farmer as um, an emblem of who might be hurt if one if the government were to regulate cigarettes more aggressively. Mm. And also, as I understand it, tobacco uh, was used in, in uh, a way to influence other countries or at least to sell into other countries that the, that right. the federal government helped them in that regard. Right. So the the fate of the cigarette in the 20th century is really tethered to the uh, efforts of the U.S. government during the Cold War. So after the Second World War, you know, the United States embarks upon the Marshall Plan. And uh, inside the Marshall Plan is $13 billion uh, worth of aid. And uh a large percentage of money that goes toward food aid to Europe is used to source U.S. tobacco, which again represents another form of subsidy for um, U.S. tobacco farmers. The fact that so many tobacco farmers were were um, in the southern states did the whole issue of then of tobacco and, and smoking, particularly, become politicized in the way everything's become politicized now in the U.S. and it's on a it's on a left right spectrum. Well, you know what's really interesting um, about uh, the eventual regulation of cigarettes um, is that it did not fall into a left right 
binary the way, you know, we expect everything to fall into mm. uh, that framework today. Um, and I think the history of the tobacco subsidy being really tied into the Democratic Party was part of this. So it meant that during the 1970s, when a, gr- uh, a movement grows to regulate uh, cigarette smoking, not really in the name of public health per se, not in the name that is of tobacco smokers, but in the name um, of non-smokers. And the most effective movement to regulate smoking was by non-smokers saying, it is my right to be free of secondhand smoke, of mm. you know tobacco smoke around me. Um, that movement uh, was uh, a movement of Republicans and Democrats and largely led by women. Um, so because the history of tobacco subsidy had been kind of a, a democratic issue, um, it meant that the the undoing of that way of, of regulating tobacco uh, was bipartisan. Also as well, could one be forgiven for the suspicion that, that uh, many large corporations that, who were large employers of people in the US would like to see a workplace ban on smoking? They just didn't want to say it out loud. Yeah, so... Um, a really important turning point in the history of the cigarette happens in the 1970s uh, when uh, a woman who works for um, Bell Telephone, which was one of the largest uh, corporations in the United States at the time, basically sues her employer because she's exposed to too much secondhand smoke and it gives her a rash and she has allergies and she has to spend um, many days um, at home from work. And she wins her lawsuit, which uh, begins the movement of of workers basically saying we have a right to a safe and healthy work environment and in response corporations also fear liability if they don't implement some kind of workplace smoking restrictions so beginning in the 1980s and really on the upswing through that decade workplaces in the United States voluntarily begin to adopt workplace smoking restrictions and what's really interesting about these is that there's a great fear that they're not going to be popular, that it's going to cause strife at work. But it turned out that that not only were they quite popular, they actually produced more non-smokers because they helped many smoking employees quit smoking. Mm, uh, But wasn't it also the case that that, that smokers tended to be less productive? I assume because they stopped to smoke all the time. That was an argument that non-smoker advocates would put forth to man, you know, it's a and it was an attempt to interest management in their way of seeing things, and so they would make arguments that smokers are 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 not productive. They damage equipment. They spend too much time at home. They're expensive to insure. Um, I think the you know the the empirics on that are more mixed, but it was certainly enough coverage for work workplaces to say, okay, we're going to adopt this workplace smoking ban because it's more efficient to have a ban than it is even to to have you know smoking uh, restrictions. In Washington, so it kind of provided cover. Yeah, in Washington D.C., Sarah is is big tobacco. Is it influential at all now? Um, well, yes. However, I would say that big tobacco's influence is not located necessarily in Washington D.C. So, unlike um, in Ireland. Uh, smoking restrictions don't come from the federal government. Smoking restrictions are implemented, like everything in the United States, in a really decentralized way. So states have their own laws, and in some states, cities have their own laws as well. And so what Big Tobacco has done in response to the, the fact that, you know, uh, workplace smoking regulation happens at the state level is in all 50 states, uh, Big Tobacco 
vies for influence at state houses. So, for example, in the state where I live, Virginia, which is, you know, historic tobacco producing state, but more importantly than that is where Altria, the parent company of Philip Morris, is located. Uh, Big Tobacco succeeded in passing uh, a law in the early 1990s that says that cities cannot regulate more stringently than the weak regulations that exist at the state level, which means that in where I live in Virginia, there is no comprehensive ban on workplace smoking because the state law that was written in 1990 says that localities can't go beyond the weak state law. Sarah, thanks very much for uh, speaking with us today. That was Sarah Mylov, author of The Cigarette, A Political History. Moncrief on News Talk.